Many of you sent notes, and it's been very, very exciting for us as a staff to share these and realize that what we're doing during this very unique time of online services is helping you and your friends. Here's a couple notes I got this week. Horizon is amazing, and Nancy and I sat and watched the complete message. We also appreciated the personal phone call today and your personal concerns regarding us and the virus problems now affecting us all. Our spirits have been raised today by both you and Chad. We thank you both oh so much. Let everyone know how much we appreciate you and can't wait for Horizon to reopen. Here's another one. Thank you so much. We really appreciate Horizon's message. So apropos and from the word, well done as usual. I forward it to our Florida group here and to our family, encouraging them to listen and heed as well. We're enjoying a day of prayer and thanksgiving here, thinking positively for the future. Well, I hope today will be equally helpful as we look at how Jesus sets the expectations for how we face the unknown, the unwanted, and the unexpected. Because aren't those three things that we hate that bring the most stress in your life when things are unknown, when they're unwanted, and when they're unexpected? Let me remind you a little bit of where Jesus is and what he's going through during this time. In our series, Power Trip, we are looking at what he's enduring in this final 24 hours of the most challenging week of his life. Here's what happens. From 6 to 7 p.m., Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, and he's warning them, things are going to get really, really bad for the next 24 hours. One of you is going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me. I'm going to be crucified. Be ready. By 9 p.m., he's going to be praying in a garden and sweating blood because of the stress he's under. They're going to have a kangaroo court put him on trial between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. He's going to be beaten and punched multiple times. By 6 a.m., he'll be scourged, which means he'll be hoisted up on a wooden post and literally with a whip with pieces of bone and metal, take chunks of his body off the front, flip him over, chunks off the other side as well. Between 7 and 9 a.m., he'll be crucified. Darkness will come over the entire land at 12 p.m., and he will die at the time he chooses. It is finished! By 3 p.m., at the exact hour that Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the priests called out for the sacrifice of the Passover lambs. Just one more piece of evidence God gave that this was his lamb sent to earth for all of his people dying at the very hour on the very day of Passover. Jesus is an actual person in history who claimed to be God and proved he was God and he endured the most unbelievable 24 hours and he wanted to give us some tools so we could do the same. And the tool he uses is a simple phrase, not as I will, but as you will. When you think about the unknown and the unexpected, it's a lot of not, not as I will. I don't want my business going through this. I don't want my kids going through this. I don't want to have the fear of dying or the fear of these circumstances. I don't want any of it. Think of this phrase as you face whatever you're facing. Not as I will, but as you will. Let me tell you a little bit what Jesus does. He, he takes his disciples to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. But you know the Bible never calls it the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible calls it a garden, and the Bible mentions the Gethsemane, but never in the same place. 
Why is that? And why of all the places he could take his three best friends right before this, this hellacious 24 hours, why would he take them to a Gethsemane to pray? Well, I went to Israel several years ago and I got to walk into this garden. Big sign says, welcome to Gethsemane. As you walk into the garden, one of the first things you notice is it's filled with beautiful, beautiful trees. In fact, it is truly a garden. It was in the darkness of that evening that Jesus was by one of these trees praying and sweating blood because of the pressure he was under. He knew he was about to go through incredibly horrific circumstances. But the word Gethsemane literally means an olive press. He took his disciples to an olive press. In fact, the garden, which is located here, if you visit Israel today, is on a mountain called the Mount of Olives because it used to be covered all the way with olive trees. If you look to the right-hand side, though, you'll see there's a lot of lack of woods and lack of trees. If we zoom in there, you'll see it's filled with graves. What used to be more and more olive trees that were harvested and brought to the Gethsemane is now graves where people are anticipating the coming back of God to earth to fix what's broken on earth, both Jewish and Christian, here on the Mount of Olives. So all of these olive trees would be taken down to the garden and under the garden was a Gethsemane or an olive press for pressing out the oil that could be found in those trees. And here's what a Gethsemane looks like. Think like a telephone pole and running about 20 to 30 feet long with gigantic boulders strapped on to weigh it down to pressurize and then the olives would be pressed here and they would be crushed under the weight of the telephone pole and crushed under the weight of these giant boulders. With that in mind, let's pick up the story. Then Jesus came with them, his three friends, to a place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Why would he tell them to sit in a place that olives get crushed while he prays? Jesus was trying to show and tell them something about what to expect. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful. Now remember, Jesus claims to be God And even God, facing the stresses of life, was sorrowful. He allowed himself to be open. He allowed himself to grieve. He allowed himself to be frustrated. Not just sorrowful and deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Now don't miss that. Jesus was under so much stress, he said, I would rather die than go through these circumstances. See, there's a lot of different views of God. God being energy. But see, energy doesn't care about you. Energy can't have sympathy for you. The God of the Bible is a God who's a person. He has personhood. He can grieve. He can sympathize. He can empathize. But God is very different from the gods where he's always transcendent but not imminent. The God of the Bible came close He knows what it's like to face tragedy and difficulty. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed. And so as you're going through this challenging time that you're feeling all these emotions swirling around you, lean in on Jesus. He is the God 
who's literally walked in our shoes. He knows what it's like to be deeply overwhelmed, deeply overcome. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing unhealthy. Even God himself shows us how to mourn, how to invite people into our sorrow, and how to be with other people in their pain. So let's again go back to this Gethsemane for a moment. First, there's a large stone with a wheel, so it can be spun around and around with a person or with an animal to crush the initial olives. And that oil will be collected on the side here, and that's the most virgin of oil, the first crushed by that giant weighted boulder. Next, the harvester will come, pick up the already crushed olives, but there's still a lot of oil in there, and place them into a bag. He'll gather the different bags of olives, and he'll stack them on top of each other. So here's bag, 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 bag on a giant compression stone that's going to be pushed down, weighted down by that telephone pole, the Gethsemane. At that point, these giant boulders will be strapped on and strapped up to pull down and crush down and get all of the extra olive juice, olive oil, out of those olives. They're here in these bags, here, here, and here. Crushing and the olive oil being collected at this location. And here's the disciple sitting here while Jesus is praying. Why does he put them here except to set them up to understand what life can be like? There's a lot of things coming your way that are going to be in the category of not my will. In fact, Jesus will turn to his father and say, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want this to happen. I don't want these circumstances. All right, Chad, that's exactly how I feel. How does that help? Well, number one, Jesus wants you to know that you need to set your expectation for what life is like so you're prepared for it. The first thing we need to remember is that life is a war zone more than a vacation. We need to expect this world to try to crush you. Most of us think about life more like a vacation. And we've had the luxury these last couple decades to think in general things are going pretty well for us. We can manage and make our life comfortable almost all the time. But think of it this way. If I said, hey, I'd like you to join me on a trip. We're going to go to a very sunny place with lots and lots of sand. You might say, oh, great. So you show up with, the, with suitcases and you've got a swimsuit in there and you're ready to go on vacation. I say, what did you bring a swimsuit for? Well, you said it was going to be sandy and warm. Aren't we going to the Keys? And I say, no. You're going to Afghanistan. You're, not, you're no longer going to have fun. You're going with the expectation, I'm going to battle and I'm hoping to survive and maybe win a battle against someone else. Right? It changes the whole way you look at it. And that's what Jesus is saying here for us. He's saying we need to expect this world to try and crush you. In fact, C.S. Lewis was asked in 1948, how are people going to survive in this difficult time? Again, this is 1948 when the greatest fear was the atom bomb. C.S. Lewis was asked, how do we live in such difficult times? In addressing the atomic age, he said, well, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atom bomb. How are we to live in the atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in the age of cancer, the age of syphilis, the age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. 
In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by the atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying and working and teaching and reading and listening to music, bathing the children and playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. C.S. Lewis, 1948, on living in an atomic age. So expect life to crush you. Be ready for life to be much more difficult and more like a war zone than a vacation. Number two, we need honesty with God and others when we go through challenging times. Jesus said to them, this is God demonstrating for us how to handle adversity. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Two things. Notice Jesus invites other people into his pain He tells other people he's sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. This is pretty real and pretty raw and pretty honest. Stay here and watch with me. He's inviting his friends. He's inviting his disciples to be with him in his pain. I got several calls this week from small groups who are FaceTiming each other or calling each other and saying, my business has never faced this level of pressure and uncertainty. I don't know what to do. Just being open and honest. And other business leaders saying, I am feeling the same way. I'm trying to serve everyone. I'm trying to keep this thing going. I have never had to face this challenge. See, when you face the not as I will moments, be honest, find other people that you can speak to, that you can voice those complaints with. Tell God how you're feeling and tell other people how you're feeling. There's a powerful book by a psychologist by the name of Henry Cloud. The book is called The Power of Other. It describes how God designed other people to pull stuff out of us that we didn't even know was there. He tells the story of his his brother-in-law, Mark, who was a Navy SEAL. And he was going through that hell week of training to qualify to be a SEAL. And one of his buddies, we'll call him Bryce, hadn't quite made it to the finish line. His whole life he had dreamed and hoped and wished and been ready to be a SEAL. And at the end of that hell week, he's swimming through the ice cold waters with every bit of training, every bit of strength, everything in him. And as he is going through that cold water, he hits the wall. And all of a sudden, he couldn't even find the energy to keep going. He couldn't find it. He dug down deep and there was nothing left to find. In that moment, as the waves pushed over him, he could call for help. But that meant his entire dream, his entire life, everything he'd trained for was about to fall apart. He kept trying to dig down. He just couldn't find any more resources. His resources were gone. His training was gone. There was nothing else to find to push on. He was so close. He could see the shore, but he hit the wall. It was then he happened to look over and Mark had already finished. He was already a seal. He made it to shore. And Mark looked across those waves and they caught each other's eyesight for about two seconds. As Bryce looked and he saw Mark look at him, Mark put his fist in the air and said, you can do it! And in that moment, Bryce describes that something came over him. 
that someone else made a connection with him. Someone else he knew had made it. Someone else was speaking encouragement to encourage, to put courage into you. He suddenly had access to a whole nother level. His body kicked into a whole nother gear. Why? Because when you share with other people, when other people enter into your struggle, it brings something out of you. And Jesus knew that. So he shared his struggles with other people, with friends during the challenging times. Expect this world to crush you, but also be honest with God and honest with others as you're going through challenging times. It's okay to say, not as I will. I don't like these circumstances. Thirdly, we need a father who has a plan that we can trust even when we can't see it. That's the amazing thing Jesus had here. He's got this father who has a plan Now the plan is gonna be a lot of pain, but God is gonna work through this plan that he and the disciples can't fully see to change the world. And sometimes that means trusting and doing things that sound crazy. That was certainly true of Corrie Ten Boone. Corrie Ten Boone and her sister were both in a concentration camp during the times of Nazi Germany. And things were grim and things were dark. They were packed into an area that should have had a third of the people in there. All the women were crammed together. As they were complaining and as they were scared and fearful for their life, they were reading in Thessalonians where it says, in all things pray with thanksgiving. Like we can't be thankful. God, there's no way God has a plan in the middle of these circumstances. Her sister turned to Corey Tinboon and said, well, let's do what God says. Let's not be anxious. Let's trust he has a plan and let's find things to be thankful for. So they prayed. And Corey Tinboon said, the prayer was, God, thank you for the fleas. What? Thank you for the fleas that are here in our barracks. Because of the fleas, the Nazi soldiers don't come in here, which allows us to pray allows us to read scripture, keeps us safe from them coming in wanting to rape us or abuse us. Father, thank you that you're using the fleas to give us community and to protect us during this time. Corey Tinboon said, I would never have thought to think of the fleas as a way God was working to protect us. It gave us the opportunity to share with one another, encourage one another, pass scripture around because none of the officers wanted to come in. They found God had a plan in the darkest of circumstances. Not as I will. To say, God, even though I don't like these circumstances, I want to trust that you have a plan, you have a will, and but, there's a big but here, I don't like it, as you will. He went a little farther and he fell on his face. This is not a real holy religious prayer. He falls on his face in the garden and he prayed, saying, oh, my father, oh, father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will there's nothing wrong with praying and asking God to take circumstances away God I don't want this cup God if it is possible heal if it is possible fix God if it is possible change direction those are perfectly acceptable prayers and to say nevertheless And I think this is the hardest place to get to. Nevertheless, even though if it is possible, you're not going to do it, even if you're not going to go the direction I want or I'd prefer or seems best, 
not as I will, but as you will. Two things we learn here that God is doing in Jesus' life and he wants to do in your and my life as well. What are the two things? Number one, God wants to work on my inner life. And it's the challenging circumstance of life that bring out opportunities for us to deal with our inner life. Let me give an example. It says in the book of Hebrews, speaking about Jesus, though he was a son, he's a son of God, yet Jesus, who was God, learned obedience. He already is perfect, yeah, but he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. When Jesus suffered, he learned how to demonstrate obedience of his inner life so other people could see it. And having been perfected, another word for that is matured, Jesus, who was already perfect, learned stuff. Jesus, who was already perfect, became more mature through suffering. And because of suffering, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If Jesus, who was perfect, could have his inner life even grown more, don't you think you and I could have our inner life grown through suffering? In fact, Paul picks this up in the book of Romans. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, called according to his purpose. Then it goes on, if you keep reading, what's God's purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. What God is doing in your life and my life is he is forming our inner life to be conformed or transformed or shaped like his son. God is going to use the challenges and the difficulties and the struggles of those unwanted, unknown, and unexpected moments to bring out stuff on the inside of you that you didn't even know was there. In good circumstances, it's so much easier to cover up. Or you might say, God, I'm courageous enough. I don't need any more courage. God's like, no, I'm gonna put you in circumstances. I'm gonna bring out a whole new level of courage. Oh, I'm gonna bring out a whole new level of compassion. I'm gonna deal with some things that you wouldn't see if you weren't in these challenges. I want you to be more and more dependent upon me. I tell you who found that to be true. There was a captain. His name was Odell, but they called him Noodle, Captain Noodle. One day he was flying his F-15. He's cruising through a moonless night. And again, this guy is professionally trained. This one's courageous. This person serves in the military. And yet God would use these circumstances to show him something in his inner life that could be grown. See, as he was flying along at F-15, he suddenly heard the wind whipping across the canopy. And the sound it made indicated to him that he was going over 600 miles an hour. He looked down at his instruments and they didn't say he was going anywhere close. He checked the wind speed. Sure enough, he was going 690. In the darkness of his gauges, he suddenly looked and he realized he had just fallen 17,000 feet in a matter of seconds. And his speed had increased another 290. He was headed straight down toward earth. In that panic, in that moment, he realized there was nothing he could do. Something was wrong with the plane. On a simple training exercise, if he didn't make a decision in the next few moments, he was going to die. In those moments, 
he had to reach in and think about what do I need to do. He leaned into his training, but he needed so much more than that. His story is recorded in Ben Sherwood's book, Survivor's Club. Here's what he said. If the F-15 was really flying straight down toward the ocean, I only have a few more seconds to solve the problem or it would be too late. Oh my gosh, he thought, this is really happening. This entire drama only lasted like five to 15 seconds. At 1,500 feet, Odell got out. Bail, bail. Radar hits show that the parachute opened just 500 feet above the water. And now in the darkness of the Atlantic, he couldn't see anything. He knew he was falling fast. He knew his arm had been dislocated from the ejection. He knew he was cut in multiple locations, but wasn't sure exactly how bad. Because it was so dark, he didn't even know when he would hit the water. One moment he was dry, the next moment, poosh, he was 10 feet under. All of a sudden, the wind caught his parachute and was dragging him across the ocean. He needed to get into that lifeboat. The problem was with the dislocated arm, he kept trying to throw himself over onto the lifeboat and the waves kept knocking him back and knocking him back. And struggle as he did, this incredibly strong, incredibly courageous man got to the point, he just said, I can't do it. The salt water was burning into all of his wounds. His arm didn't work, it was totally limp. And again, attempt after attempt after attempt to get into that life raft. He finally got to the point that his courage had run out. And here's what he records. This is it, I'm gonna die tonight. His eyes welled up with tears as he remembers his decision to stop fighting for his life and to start praying. Military training had carried him this far, but now he put his fate in the hands of a higher power. This was his defining moment of the whole experience, he says. Broken and battered, he cried out, God, I need help. Pounded by the ocean and on the verge of giving up, Udell says one vivid image appeared in his mind's eye and drove him to keep fighting, his pregnant wife. She was now a few months pregnant with her first child. As the waves battered his energy and confidence, he imagined the devastating scene, an Air Force officer walking up to the side door of his home in North Carolina. In this nightmare, Christy was standing in the doorway receiving the terrible news that her husband had died in a training accident. It was so unfair, Udell thought. How cruel to Christie and the unborn baby. I can't let this happen, he told himself. So he prayed to the Lord to let him see his wife again and to witness the birth of their child again. I've got too much to do, he remembers thinking. I can't die tonight. And suddenly, Udell suddenly felt a surge of energy. Summoning all his strength, he made one last attempt to pull himself onto that raft. But this time, instead of knocking him off, a gentle wave nudged him to safety. The feeling was incredible. His entire body ached, but now he was out of the cold water and he could take care of himself. No doubt the searchers were already hunting for him. Even if it took hours or days to be rescued, he knew he'd be okay. A calm spiritual peace surrounded him. He looked down at his own body. He couldn't believe the damage. Everything seemed twisted in the wrong direction. He had broken or dislocated just about every major joint in his body. But in the deadpan style of a fighter pilot, he thought, Dude, you gotta straighten yourself out. Four hours later, the Coast Guard helicopter plucked Odell from the Atlantic. It took a rescue swimmer 30 minutes to disentangle him from his parachute lines and hoist him to safety. What's amazing about that story? Here's a guy who already had courage, but it was in these circumstances that God worked on his inner life, calling on a higher power, 
saying, God, I need you in my life. I haven't thought of you. I've had plenty of resources and plenty of training, but now I need you and I need your help. One of the things God might be doing in your life right now is asking you and I to say, not as I will, but as you will. God, help me, rescue me, deliver me, forgive me, empower me during this time. Is that Jesus is so focused on other people. That's the second thing God wants to do during times of challenge and and tragedy. God wants me to look for the needs of people around me. I mean, Jesus is being scourged, he's being crucified, and he's still looking out for other people. It's amazing, look at this. Jesus found them sleeping in the Gethsemane, and he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for an hour? I needed help. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Now think about that. Jesus is praying. Capillaries breaking his pores. He's bleeding or sweating blood. And he's thinking about Peter. Peter, you need to sleep not just, you need to pray not just for my sake, for your sake. But if you don't pray, you are going to end up in temptation. And as your pastor, can I say the same thing? If you don't pray and reach out to God during this time, you're going to end up in temptation. I don't know what the temptation is, but you're going to fall into different patterns or habits. You're going to depend on something besides God to bring you peace. And God would say to you, even when he was suffering and and sweating blood, he was looking out for the needs of others. Peter, I'm worried about you and your temptation. Jesus, in his most difficult hour, focused on other people's needs all around him. Amazing. And he wants you and I to do the same. In fact, we need to look for ways to join our Heavenly Father in helping other people during this time. See, all this was done, all these challenges were done, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. God did all of this so that during this time, he would actually be able to serve other people, which is why he went to the cross. So I want to give you some ways that you can do even that. How can you open your eyes and say, God, I want to be honest I don't like my circumstances, but I'm expecting a war for a while. Two, I'm going to be honest and share my heart. I don't like these circumstances with God and others. Third, I'm going to trust my Heavenly Father as a plan. I want to partner with you where you're working in my inner life during this time. I want to look for ways to serve other people. What is God doing in your kid's life since you're in such close proximity? Your spouse's life. What supernatural wisdom do you need to navigate these incredibly challenging economic and business times? And how can we as a church help? In fact, one of the things we're doing is our entire equipping team is putting together a personal care project. We're going to try and reach out to as many people as we we can in the entire church, individually phone calls, individual emails, individual texts, to pray for you and to help you. I tell you, this last couple years, God has really taught me some things about fear. Last two years, my wife had two back surgeries and was literally laying on her back for about six months, couldn't move. And I was overwhelmed with my circumstances. A special needs son who was at one point throwing up nine times a day for three months for some unknown reason I still don't know. My wife is on her back, having surgeries, trying to figure out how to handle life, trying to get support systems falling all around me. It was just chaos. And over the last two years, God put courage in me and worked on things in my inner life that I didn't realize needed to be worked on. But he strengthened me. 
And one of the songs I listened to during that time over and over and over again was this next song, Fear is a Liar. Our band can't be here because of the quarantine, but several months ago they performed it and it spoke to me and I hope it speaks to you. Let me pray for you and I want you to listen to the words of this song and take courage that God is with you as you face fear. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your strength and thank you for your courage and thank you, Father, you have not given us a spirit of fear but of sound-mindedness and of power and love and show us how we as a community can reach out and, and cooperate with you and being conformed to the image of your son in the inside of our hearts and souls. Make us more courageous than we are, more, uh, more, more ingenuity than we even know we have, more vulnerable than we ever thought we could be, Father. Use these circumstances to transform us into the best version of ourselves and come against the spirit of fear. In Jesus' name, amen.